Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In the newly released September-October issue, Ashley Clark writes about Dee Reese's spectacular new film, Mudbound. Told from the perspective of two families, one white, the other black, in Mississippi during and immediately after World War II, Reese's film incorporates multiple perspectives and subtly evinces how structural racism works. As Ashley writes, quote, there are no clear heroes or villains in Mudbound, aside from the virulently prejudiced Pappy, who waltzes straight through the canon of evil screen fathers alongside John Huston's Noah Cross in Chinatown and Christopher Walken's Brad Sr. in At Close Range. Without ever feeling forced or didactic, Reese's writing engages with questions surrounding a modern hot topic, white privilege. End quote. To dive into Mudbound further, I was joined by... Ashley Clark, a senior programmer of cinema at BAM and longtime film comment contributor. And Eric Hines, associate curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image and also longtime film comment contributor. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you both for coming. Ashley wrote a feature in the new issue about Dee Reese's Mudbound, and Dee Reese is a filmmaker perhaps best known for Pariah, which was an independent film, semi-autobiographical, about a young black lesbian coming out to her family. And, and Ashley interviewed her for the new issue, wrote a feature about the film. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about her career, visual style, etc. I mean, the, the first thing to say about Mudbound is that it's quite an extraordinary leap in scale and scope from mm -hmm. what, what we've seen from, from Dee Reese so far. Pariah is a small, beautifully constructed and very attractive looking and empathetic film. But as I say, it's, it's incredibly small scale. And then um, while I, I liked Bessie, you know, which she did uh, for HBO, mm -hmm. features a magnificent central performance from Queen Latifah. And what you can see from both Bessie and Pariah is that Dee Reese has an extraordinary way with actors uh, coaxing very un unguarded and, and bold performances from them. But in terms of a, a leap in canvas and an ambition to Mudbound, which is a World War II set epic family drama focusing on two families in Mississippi, one white uh, landowners and the other a black family. They are share tenants, so it's slightly different from, from sharecropping, which, which we've kind of seen more of. They, 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 kind of, they work on their land, they pay rent, and they do have some agency, but the limits of their agency is, is exposed by the interactions that they have with this other family. And there are all kinds of social, political, racial, sexual intrigues that color the narrative over its two hours plus running time. Um, and it's an extraordinary film. And I first saw it at Sundance and actually spoke about it in a Sundance pod shortly following a near-death experience when I ran up a hill and realized that there was no air left. <laughs> Rookie mistake. To, yes, Rookie mistake. Schoolboy error. And, and had to record. After being emotionally walloped by, yeah. um, by Mudbound, I then you know, had to go and sit down and talk about it 10 minutes afterwards. And I was still really trying to process it. And I've come to the conclusion that, although I don't normally like to dabble in hyperbole, that it is really is a, a modern classic. Um, 
perhaps in the making and I'm really excited to see how this film is received by audiences. Yeah. One thing I just want to build on a couple of things you were just saying is that uh, I also saw it at Sundance and also had a very, I think we had, I think we, we chatted briefly at the festival about it, how um, overwhelmed I was by it. And it was interesting, I think as, as, it, as it makes its way from there, it hasn't really been shown until now and, and it'll be in Toronto and New York Film Festival before it has a, uh, whatever theatrical combined with streaming life it, it's given by Netflix is for better and worse and I think for the most part for the worse when we talk about a, com- a film showing up at Sundance there then when it makes its way out there there's a, almost a skepticism that, that people might have in terms of oh this is a big in Sundance it's clearly not going to be as big when it comes elsewhere I had this feeling watching it was unlike any other experience I've had at Sundance and I've been going to Sundance for more than a decade I wasn't watching a Sundance movie I was watching a great great movie there was no filter there was no curve being given there i was just i couldn't believe i was getting a chance to see that in that environment yeah it's a remarkable experience i mean i saw it on a sunday morning (laughs) as well like (laughs) not not the kind of time you would you would traditionally associate with watching a film like this it's worth picking up on a point you made that we're all kind of sitting here in a privileged position of being able to see these these films way before the general public do and you can sometimes fall into I don't know, slight malaise about that. Yeah. Um, but there is there are these kind of weird cycles that happen with Sundance. Like mm-hmm. we saw the veneration, the ex- excitation about the birth of a nation last year. Mm-hmm. And to, to use an English phrase, it had pretty much died on its ass by the time it came out in yeah. October. Yeah. So all of that inside baseball stuff that us people in, working in the industry, there was a huge up and down and, yeah. and that it was subject to public scrutiny as well with what happened with the Nate Parker thing but there are so many of these factors that can colour a film's lifespan before it's even come out Um, so it was remarkable to see a film as a seemingly complete plugged into the contemporary moment but also a genuine work of art and, um, and, I, and I think as mudbound. And just to let's move away from Sundance for uh, quickly, but I just wanted to say one other thing is that I saw Pariah opening night at Sundance when that and and that it is it makes sense within the context of Sundance. Sundance is actually a great platform for a film like Pariah. It is small, it mm-hmm. is intimate, and it needs a platform like that to give it whatever life it's going to have. This felt like, oh, Sundance is lucky to have this movie because this is extraordinary. I, I don't, again, in terms of the quality of the film, but also just the scale of the ambition, films like this hardly ever get made. So to have a filmmaker with her second true feature, third feature ultimately, um, making this type of leap, mm-hmm. it's an amazing thing to say, what, what, what a leap for an artist. I also just, there are very few filmmakers I can think of that would attempt something of this ambition right. yeah in terms of scale um I, I was thinking about potential influences and reference points for the piece and the last film i could think of and maybe you guys have some suggestions of a comparable scale and narrative elasticity and, and kind of untrammeled emotion i was thinking of something like the english patient mm. from 96 which won a whole bunch of oscars right. it's not a film i'm massively keen on but just in terms of the scale and the setting and and the ambition of it sure. um and we do seem to be in a in a time where Many, many public figures, people like Steven Soderbergh, have been bemoaning the middle ground film where it's mm-hmm. not a tiny little film mm-hmm. and it's not a blockbuster. It's not a huge kind of comic book film. And there's films, there's been a real shortfall of films for, for grown ups which are backed by 
producers and funders who really trust the artist mm -hmm. to, to go there with, with the money they need to deliver a story at this level. And it felt anachronistic in that respect as well. It was like, fuck, I, I really haven't seen anything like this. This is what, again, I, I'm wary of hyperbole, but I was, I was thinking this is what cinema can be. It was so powerful yeah. and transporting and using so many things that are so unique to the medium of cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, that you need, you know, the, the scale of the sets, the, the location shooting, uh, the everything about it was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, just it's in the title, right? Mudbound, and you know, the film is set on a farm, um, and it really embraces how dirty and messy and disease-ridden uh, life on a farm can be. But then there's also so many shots that look like it could be a painting, like the sky, the way the clouds look in the sky, just even, I, you know. They're plowing a field and it's a great American pastoral painting or, you know, one character is crying like by an outhouse. And it's still like there's so much beauty around her that it really it does have that epic quality that you don't see a lot anymore. And clearly a care put into making these images. Yeah. And it, it kind of adjectives that I try, I try to steer clear of using too many adjectives right. in my work yeah, yeah. Um, because it can seem like you're falling back on, on, on lazy lazy habits but in terms of just purely elemental and immersive I did really feel that with this film mm -hmm. literally in terms of feeling the elements it's called Mudbound and it opens with a scene of absolute nightmarish intensity mm -hmm. where two brothers are this is not a spoiler we you know we find it right at the start that the father played by um, Jonathan Banks aka Mike from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and Be Beverly Hills Cop as well but that's for the <laughs> Let's just go through his whole filmography. <laughs> Welcome to the Jonathan Banks IMDb podcast. Yes. Um, and it opens with a burial scene mm -hmm. and it's just lashing with, and it just, you think, I, I thought back to The Revenant and how much it was trumpeted, what were the suffering that Leonardo DiCaprio right. went through. But I thought with that film, to what end, the suffering that the, that the actors clearly go through in making this film, there's a real delivery, there's a real emotional payoff for for the the efforts, the lengths that they go to for their craft in this film. Yeah. You you use the word empathy um, in your piece that I was briefly able to read quickly before. It's hot off the presses, so I was able to look quickly through your epic feature. Um, but I, I saw that word, it jumped out at me, and I, I, was, I was happy to see it because feeding off of what you're saying in terms of the way that the film starts with two brothers bearing their father, in terms of its ambition, when you say the word ambitious, you often we're talking about Violet, what you're describing in terms of what it's doing visually how it actually it, it comes it, it's, it functions as obviously cinema but then also it, it comes across as a painting at times that's all true and we talk about amb ambition we also we often mean set design cinematography acting maybe the, this is a narratively incredibly ambitious and i think i mean novelistic in the best possible sense because this is a film with a lot of of voiceover point like voiceovers from different characters fully expressed points of view from different characters and the first several points of view we get are from white characters mm -hmm. and they are not where we are going to wind up in terms of where our true sympathies not it, it of course it's successful in the sense that we do see we inhabit each of those points of view but to actually start off and give us nearly 40 minutes of points of view other 
than the black characters is an incredibly, I think, empathetic thing to do because it takes on each of these experiences. And again, we may wind up shifting in terms of how we feel about these characters and how we, how we measure one against the other, but to take seriously the experiences of each of those characters, give them a voice, give them a point of view, again, not to create a sameness or an equality of those voices, mm. but to take them seriously. And like, I just can't think of very many films that pull that off. Novels do it. Mm-hmm. Novels do that really well. You have the space to do it. Cinema does not offer much of an opportunity for that, and I can think of like maybe two filmmakers who even attempt to do that. I mean, it's worth pointing out, dear listener, that the, the film is based on a novel by, by Hilary Jordan. Correct, yeah. um, which was optioned, I think, you know, a good few years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've been, I think, reflexively trained to be suspicious um, whenever voiceover narration is used sure. because in my kind of early film scholarship, it always seemed to be that that was a crutch. It sure. was lazy storytelling. Sure. So it kind of put me off a bit to begin with. Well, she starts straight off. She's it's not straight in. Off. There is yeah. a lot. You really have to get used to it. But the polyvocality of it, as you mentioned, becomes, it, it's experimental. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very strange to be yeah. having six, seven, I think in total, six, seven, eight points of view. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It's in, you know, what you mentioned, I think is interesting about opening with the white characters. When I spoke to Dee about this, yeah. She was talking about wanting to examine the currency of whiteness, you know, to use her phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, all the characters, all the white characters have it. They all have privilege, mm-hmm. but it's how they spend that currency. Spending is interesting. And, and there is uh, Jason Clark's character, Henry, who is yeah. the, the macho man married to Kerry Mulligan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is the upstanding tough guy. He just believes that the system works. He is not a bad guy he wouldn't Mm. consider himself a racist guy but he is participating fully in a system Mm -hmm. the perpetuation of which um as we know has has never been fully addressed in this country Mm -hmm. and he is effectively more dangerous than somebody who might be considered more openly racist and the film plugs into a lot of conversations that absolutely we're all having today but not in a think piecey way, not right. in a hectoring or ham-fisted way, right. in a very subtle way. And it is always rooted to that empathy, which um, is the quality of which is attributable to the performances, which maybe we'll come to in a bit. Yeah. I think it's a beautifully acted film as well, drawing performances from actors that I've not necessarily um, had so much um, stock in in the past. People, right. I have to say, uh, an actor like Carrie Mulligan, yeah. I, I've not really... Had, had a great time watching her stuff in the past, but I think she's wonderful in this. The entire cast brings so much sensitivity to, to, to the mm-hmm. role that they have, and they seem to... I think there's a, there was a closeness on set when they were working together in, in those horrible conditions mm-hmm. um, that seems to have drawn something really special out. Yeah, no, I mean, I, there's a million things to say. Um, I, I agree with the performances. Garrett Hedlund, I think, is is fantastic in it too. I think he's been waiting, There's been, or the world has been looking for him to be right in a film that is also right. I think he's been good in some other films that aren't so great, um, or he's been miscast here. Like, he's kind of perfect in this. He, and he's so good in uh, Inside Lewin Davis for mm. the 10 minutes that he's in For the 10 minutes he's in, he's perfect. For John, 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 excuse me, John Goodman's yeah. right-hand man. Yeah. And he, he, he in, in this film, he plays the almost Norman Mailer-esque white negro in training kind of reckless sure. guy who mm-hmm. who is an arty guy and he goes off to war and um, the, the two the two people who go off to war are jamie uh, played by garrett headland and and ronzel who played by jason mitchell from straight out of compton who is the 
the eldest child of the African-American family, and they both go off to war. Um, and that's kind of, th their departures and their, their experiences in war uh, form a lot of the basis of the first half of the movie. The second half of the movie is their return back into society. And their, their interactions are absolutely fascinating and heartbreaking and, yeah. and particularly complex in terms of sure. that currency of whiteness thing because in being so in his own mind progressive and being openly friendly and helpful to Ronzel, mm -hmm. Jamie brings Ronzel into, into danger. Right. And because he doesn't recognize the intractable structures of, of Jim Crow America at the time right. that prohibit that kind of thing. Right. So he, he's ostensibly a nice guy, but he's perhaps more dangerous than anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that complexity is, is shot through this film in every, every moment. Absolutely. Well, I thought, you know, you brought up the beginning earlier. And I think that's a really crucial scene in terms of narrative, because not only are they digging a grave for their father, they have to stop because they find the remains of what they assume to be a runaway slave. Like you hear them hit chains and then they find a skull with a shotgun hole in the back mm -hmm. of it. And it's something that it establishes that this, you know, this is, these are the waning days of the Jim Crow South. This will not be legal anymore, let's say. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a metaphor for the film, it's digging up history, but then also that it's just a part of the landscape this violence that defines American society. Sorry, all of us are in it, Sorry, mm -hmm. you know. Speaking of Jim Crow South, maybe it would be interesting to sort of compare other films that try and deal with this because I feel like it's kind of, it's become kind of rare. In recent years, it's sort of gone off the table. It was interesting, wasn't it, in the, the final Obama years, in, in the second term, there was this rash of films that came out kind of backward looking films like The Butler, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Selma, mm -hmm. 12 Years a Slave, Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. You know, there was suddenly this rash of films that looked at that past. And I, I, do, I do kind of wonder to, w to what extent those, those films were looking at things in, in a sense that we have overcome. Not, not overcome, we have got past certain issues yeah, yeah. there's a, a certain aspect of triumphalism and, and this is not to criticize the films each of them on their quality yeah. individual qualities because these are all myriad my, myriad complex films with many many shades to them but a sense in that caucus of films particularly something like the butler where you come out of it and you feel almost you feel trained to be elated that we've right. overcome sure. there was that whole idea of post <laughs> the, the comedy of post-racial america right. which which was an idea that did kind of take on a little bit when Obama was, right. you know, I think smart people always knew that was nonsense, but it, it was an attractive narrative right. um, that one person has <laughs> overturned history by, by making, you know, make, by ascending to the highest office in the land. Right. But that's also a sort of a legacy of the 90s, right? The end of history where the idea that, okay, so there are going to be no more bad wars. There's only going to be good wars. And, you know, sexism is basically over. Racism is basically over. We just need to let the old people die off and it'll be fine. And clearly what happened in Charlottesville, it's not something that just sort of goes away. You know, sort of a wake-up call to you, that's a definite luxury. And... Um, Mudbound really helps show that in a way that is, again, not didactic and not, um, I don't know, 
uptight liberal garbage. I don't know how uptight else to say Uptight liberal it. garbage. Yeah, I, I, know the, I know the type of film you mean. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. It's interesting that this this film did come out in 2009. Uh, sorry, excuse me. The book was released in published in 2009. Right. So you're looking right at the start of the Obama years. Has a very different ending. Yes, it does. Um, which we probably shouldn't spoil here. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, just in case you want to read it. Yeah. But um, had the film come out then, I do wonder what the reaction to it would have been because we can read so much mm-hmm. more into it. I, I'm so wary of connecting the mm-hmm. contemporary issues to art and right. it leads you sa- down so many dead ends and to so many simplistic conclusions. Yeah. That said, it would be impossible for me to talk about my reaction to Mudbound without the the fact that I saw it two days after the yeah. inauguration of Donald Trump, yeah. right. which was being celebrated by a resurgent clan mm-hmm. and various alt-right, so fucking alt-right, Nazis, the con- the country over. You know, yeah. one minute you're watching Richard Spencer getting his head punched in. You know, set to a variety of musical <laughs> backdrops, which was one of my cine- cinema highlights of Sundance. <laughs> um, and the next minute you're watching Mudbound, which yeah. really it's set in. It's no surprise that it features hardcore racism at some point in the narrative. And to to be watching that, knowing it is back, that the genie is out of the bottle, mm-hmm. is makes it a more powerful experience. Well, well, what's inter- what's so amazing too about uh, when you and you already covered it, so I'm not going to reiterate it all. But like, just to appreciate how, considering this moment, how this artist is adapting a book written by a white woman, which is somewhat based on her own family experiences, and that transference is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think, and her taking seriously that transference and bringing to bringing to it herself again, not to and and this is not to reduce Dree's as an artist by sort of describing who she, you know, her being a black woman. Like that's not, I'm saying, in fact, it's the opposite. The fact that she has taken on this text as, a, as much as anything to make it about, as you said, the economy of whiteness is that's the story that has been the story for all of this time. And we've never actually approached it that way. That the fact that it does seem, you know, after Charlottesville, like at least there is a conversation about that that hasn't actually existed previously. Dee Rees as an artist foresaw that to some degree or has known this as most, as many intelligent artists have for a very long time. That that's the conversation. That's what this is about. And that's why is it's such a perceptive and empathetic piece considering that because the the, 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 the white family in, uh, there, there are two families uh, living in the same property here the white family is not a rich family. The right white family is struggling. The white family is literally mud-bound and metaphorically mud-bound. They're not getting anywhere. The fact that they are, you know, either appreciating or, or, or feeling guilty about having a family at their heel to some degree is the only leverage they have in the world. Mm-hmm. So how that then echoes through decades of, of, of American culture and history and we're locked in this and we're locked in this, again, racism is not about black people it's about white people and so to have a narrative like this that takes it all that gets it um and to have that level of empathy is 
It's extraordinary. So like, I want that 100 years ago. I want it 100 years from now. It's wonderful that this exists now. And it, and it doesn't for a minute uh, engage in this prevalent strain of both sidesism. No, not know? at all. Or, or that oh the, 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 the kind of thing, the Paul Haggis style, the crash. Oh, we're all a bit racist, really. <laughs> you know. If right. you think about it. Yeah, think about it's it. not that at yeah. all. Yeah. It's, 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 it's all an ethical choice, one, one after the other. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why no one wants to admit that they're racist, because it's like, oh, that means like I'm a terrible person. It's a value judgment. It's and it's like, yeah. it's a bad thing, yes, but it's part of something much larger, which is what, again, this yeah. film is showing. I'm not racist because Ludacris knows that it's a stereotype that black people <laughs> steal cars before stealing cars. Before <laughs> You know, the, the Mudbound is, is, is leagues ahead in terms of the, exactly yeah. the style. I think you put it really well, Eric. Um, uh, really, really streets ahead in nuance. and But also blending that nuance with, there's no sense of it being an academic treatise. It's kind mm. of a miraculous thing for this film to, to work on so many levels with such force. It really is complex and nuanced on, on difficult issues, but it's bloody entertaining as well. It's it sweeping. It's, it's yeah. it takes you away. The combat scenes are fantastic. There's there's humor in it. There's there's romance. It it, well, it has it all. Well, it's it one does. of the things you're, you're describing. <laughs> <laughs> Mudbound. Go see it. The, the, yeah. I mean, that is the point, right? <laughs> Let's stop pretending it's that. But, but, <laughs> Let's make sure it gets Bafo Bo, guys. Come on. But uh, come on. For the three days that it's uh, in box in theaters before it's online. <laughs> but uh, the you, the way you were just describing the the you were characterizing the crash sequence. Um, made me think of the great masterpiece coming to America, and, <laughs> and Eddie, Mur Eddie Murphy's Jewish character in the barber shop, who would always go ha ha ha, which is basically how like every scene ends in Crash with like that in my head. See, <laughs> you're racist too. Something else I appreciated in this film is that um, there is a Jewish character. There's a Jewish doctor who comes and treats the black family after um, Carrie Mulligan's character steals money from her husband from a safe that has the code is um, the, the day the Civil War began. It's, it, that demonstrates like a basic act of human kindness, but it also it shows that white and black were not the only sort of issues going on in the South at that time. The way we describe it, it almost seems like we're talking about a four hour film. The fact that it, it finds a way of bringing all this in without being didactic, without yeah. checking boxes is amazing. We haven't talked about Mary J. Blige though. Oh my God, she's so good. I mean, it's kind of amazing that there is so much to say about this film and yet there is somebody without really much of an acting resume. She brings real love to the parts. <laughs> 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 Did Dee talk about this? Because like, uh, <laughs> no more drama. We need oh. no we more. Well done. <laughs> the sequel. Well done. Um, did, did she talk about? I didn't see this part about the relationship with Carrie Mulligan and Mary J. Blige. Because that they no, I mean, about I could have I could have spoke to Dee for hours and hours and hours. I, you know, I, I wanted to talk to her about everything in the film, but I didn't really get a chance to speak to her about that particular relationship. But that is fascinating well, they, too. They spoke about it on stage at Sundance, and it made me really want to know more because obviously those are very different people coming from very different places. Mm -hmm. And I think they didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. It's one of these classic situations where you're thrown in the mud for an intense shoot with a whole, without a whole lot of preparation. Um, 
where it sounded like Mary authored a kind of sisterhood with Carrie. Like Carrie's very reserved. Mary is not. Mary's like, when are we hanging out? And it's just a fascinating thing to think about those two people having to forge some kind of relationship to be on camera because their relationship is crucial to the film. Mm -hmm. They're the tie between the two houses. Um, and and to have and so it was, it was just fascinating to see like something happened and and as as experienced as, as Carrie Mulligan is, it seems like she actually needed somebody else to come in and yank her out of mm -hmm. her own instincts to to create that that relationship. And Mary J. Blige is, is very understated uh, in the film. She, it, I must confess, it took me fifteen twenty minutes, I think, before I even realized it was her. That was her, yeah. yeah. Think, is that? And then because it, it does the kind of cold open. There's there's no credits mm -hmm. like starring da da da. Um, I was also thinking in, in our moment of talking about tearing down monuments and mm. yeah. what what deserves to be memorialized and what doesn't. In a film sense, there's really been not enough spoken about the the sacrifices and heroics of African American soldiers mm -hmm. um, uh, in in World War Two, mm -hmm. and this film adds to a very kind of slim canon of films, like the HBO film Tuskegee Airmen, like Red Tails, which George Lucas spent all of his money on, mm -hmm. um, Miracle at Saint Anna by Spike Lee, which right. is a strange, unwieldy film, but I'm actually I I quite like. I think it's you know you, you you're always going to get passion with Spike Lee um and i thought this film was was really in, as an interesting complement to that to to show what it was like in very simple terms for the Ronzel character to be fighting the two wars um to be a hero and to be to feel free uh away from home and in europe mm -hmm. and to find love and companionship abroad mm -hmm. to win and then to come home and be be the villain yeah. be completely disrespected and that is extremely powerful in the film. Mm -hmm. I would just add a soldier story. Yes, yep. To that. Um, young Denzel in that. Young yeah, Denzel. wonderful movie. Yeah. And Strange Victory, which you mentioned yes. in your piece as well, which yes. is uh, so relevant and so perceptive to mention that in relation to this. Um, obviously, could not be a more different film, but... Well, yes and no. I mean, do you want to kind of give a quick recap no, just, of what... I'm a more uh, different film in the sense of it being a documentary, an, I, I a documentary just mean for, essay for, for film. The, for the, for the oh, listener, sure, sure. like, to just Train kind Victor, of... Which I actually wrote about for my documentary column for Film Comment a while ago, which is uh, a film that is basically um, a very... Uh, I wrote in the context of writing, uh, writing documentaries and how the voiceover is very strong, poetic, mm -hmm. angry in many ways... Um, it has a, has, has a very strong presence, it has a strong point of view, um, and it takes on uh, the sort of rise of fascistic elements after World War II, after mm -hmm. toppling fascism abroad, and how the way that we treat immigrants and the non-white population has a fascistic bent to it. Um, uh, it was amazing to write about that last year. I, I, it's, it's a, I can't believe that we're in, a, in, in an America where it feels even more uh, uh, of the moment, even though it's very, very much of of its moment. Um, but anyway, so so that so so strange victory, which was re released last year of a milestone. Mm -hmm. um, you invoked, uh, th though, a documentary essay in in relation. To yeah, Mudbound. I mean, it shares thematic, quite clear thematic links with Mudbound, yeah. but formally too, some of the editing in in Mudbound, some of the the kind of almost smash cuts between. Um, life on the farm and, and, and combat really reminded me of that collagistic um, 
approach that Leo Hurwitz uses in, in, in Strange Victory. It's, mm. it's at times quite assaultive, not in an Oliver Stone cut, cut, cut yeah. way, but just the, the individual import of certain cuts. I mean, there's, there's one cut in, in Mudbound where the, the father, the African-American family, Hap, played by Rob Morgan, who mm. was briefly in Pariah and is really, really good in so this. So good. Mm-hmm. He falls off a ladder and, and break, falls off the roof that he's working on the church that he's building and breaks his leg and that's there's a sound bridge to combat and i jumped out of my chair in sundance you know it's extraordinary use of form to kind of connect the psychological and physical spaces of these two characters and that that reminded me of strange victory which is again a very brutal and brusquely edited film um with, with with great emotional force very perceptive yeah and I mean, also what you're describing really gets at the heart of another thing that happens in the second half of the film, which is depicting both Ronzel and Jamie suffer from, clearly suffer from PTSD, but they didn't have a word for it back then. And you see them, part of what they bond over is somebody who understands and shares that experience of the thrill of being in the air, but then also, and fighting and the thrill of that, but then also being in a seat next to somebody who gets shot, their brains are just splattered all over. And so mm-hmm. it's like, I feel like that experience is, and that it happened to, you know, quote unquote, the greatest generation, these people who are fighting evil, that they could come back and have mixed feelings about that experience was complete, you know, and showing that I think is really, um, I think important because it's just, again, we have a word for it and they didn't. Well, they, they did have a word. They had shell shock, you know, and, and but that was, but I don't think, but people coming back from like World War II, they wouldn't be labeled as like shell shocked, or unless it was like a very serious case. But, but the, the, what this, to me, it's like it's, it's such a sad thing because it's yeah. less, to me, it's less about us having a word for it now and then than not. It, to me, it's in almost every war in recent yeah that, that we have record of. Mm-hmm. There actually is a lot written about it. And, or expressed about it in the time directly after. Yeah. And then there's a very willful and then sometimes governmental, like official state push against, like to, to right. create amnesia about right, that, right, right. Um, whether it's conscious or not. So to me, like there is literature, there are films in the late 40s that take this on. Yeah. And then the 50s doesn't. It goes away, yeah. It, not entirely. I mean, Sam Fuller actually goes way into it a lot of the time. But like there is a sort of flattening out um, that the legacy that can't be the legacy. The legacy needs to be something else. Right. So um, it makes me terrified now that though we do have study, we have much more engaging with it. Like mm-hmm. we're going to find a way of just forgetting all about it in the next decade, which to me, it's so to me seeing, well, thinking about that. I don't think I don't people know. realize that we're still at war, but I mean, we're also not at war. We're occupying countries right. and that has a different impact, et cetera, et cetera. And the sure. idea that it's just, going on and on and on and on and like you can pretty easily forget about it because it's just going on in the background but we tend not to use words like empire anymore exactly but yeah that's more a language thing isn't it um something that's dawned on me having this conversation i've seen the film twice i think i can see it many many more times there's so much in it Mm -hmm. and yet it does what it needs to do with Mm -hmm. great economy i believe yeah in 134 minutes, I I could I could fully imagine somebody trying to make this into a big long TV series. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it does so much with with such crispness and economy and and accomplishment in the time allotted to it makes it so purely cinematic, which is very kind of moving to me Mm -hmm. at a time when we're seeing so many more 
so many so much more competition for our attention with, with distended television series and and there are so many things i watch and you know i don't i really really don't want to get into tv versus film <laughs> no 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 i really don't want to do that because it's it's a dead end argument but i can only speak personally and i have seen so many tv series that i do think you know what you're 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 pushing it you're going on you're on and on and extending extending it yeah a, a filmmaker you know you could do this in a film it's hard though it's hard this is something she's doing something really hard all of these people are doing something really hard it is worth it because it's f remarkable um but i do think that it's harder to do this it's really hard given budget considerations now what's yeah. ha what's happened to that middle part of the industry but i'm just kind of as i said it's just dawned on me talking now how moving it is to me that you know to go back to the throwback element of, of watching a film mm -hmm. like this and not having seen anything like it it feels like it's been beamed in <laughs> from another time I, I can't think of my, it's particularly in American cinema you know and that's and that's why I, I, I go back to like talking about what it pulls off in terms of a narrative because it's uh, it's it, it's easy to say well what cinema does best is something along the lines of 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 of, of visuals this is a an like an audio visual spectacle is what cinema does well mm -hmm. and what TV does well is storytelling, right? And then I think about this and I'm like, no, this is a remarkable storytelling. This is great storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's also a work in, in terms of its shape and how it, it's work of composition. Yeah. And it's another thing you don't, again, I don't want to have a TV, that's not what I'm trying to do, but, but I do think that there's language that crops up around this where you wind up applying certain terminology to, to one or the other as a way of saying, well, this is great because you have an opportunity to do this. Composi to, to compose a script to work in this f amount of time is very, very hard. Composition doesn't just apply to the frame. Um, and and I think that it's, in, it's useful to think about it in those terms because how can you make, how can you accomplish this much in 130 pages or how many pages that script was? Mm. Um, I don't quite know how she did, but it's it's, it's so well paced. I mean, yeah. I'm getting well, carried away about it, but it, it it really is so beautifully paced. It's mm -hmm. it never feels rushed. It never feels like too much, and and it is that economy and yeah. and measuring. Right, and I mean, I will. The last thing I will say is that what I find interesting about that pacing is reminiscent of There Will Be Blood, and not to be like. Oh, well, Dee Reese is like the black P.T. Anderson because she is Dee Reese and we don't need to make a comparison. But PTA is the white he's Dee Reese. He's the white Dee Reese, yeah, obviously. We just didn't realize it. But he's had like 15 years just out in the open. But there are so many parallels between this film and There Will Be Blood because There Will Be Blood starts off in a hole, a man emerging from a hole, and we see him in society and this film basically goes you see the white family go from it literally in a hole digging a hole falling in getting completely wet and then we flash back to them in tuxedos and civilization and you see them why they have to go to this utterly terrible well not terrible that's nothing wrong with the country it's very filthy though to this very filthy um very impoverished environment and it's interesting to see that trajectory and it does it in a way that it maintains how epic how big of a change that is in ways that it's again not hammering you over the head and are you know economical let's say i think that's all true it speaks to the amp well the paul dano gets hammered over the head oh yeah 
Nice, nice. Carry on. No, I, I think it's a, everything you're saying. It just, but in terms of the fact that Dee Reeves with her third film is working on, on a scale of ambition and accomplishment um, in terms of adaptation, in terms of uh, American historical epics, in terms of taking on, you know, basically part of the American sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a that's a great point of comparison. And uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think I, it's not one that had occurred to me, but I, th- I think it is a really interesting comparison. Kind of like to watch the films back to back now. I haven't seen There Will Be Blood for for some years. Yeah, good um, good um, Hate America series <laughs> double <laughs> yeah, yeah, feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sad, but they're not even hate. There's just I think I think actually both films make they really make an accurate diagnosis. Let's say they're both incredibly sad. They're just yeah. really really effectively sad films in that I think they take seriously their characters and they take seriously the environment and the values and what they're inheriting and what they're giving forward. And there's no, yeah. And there's no kind of cosmetic nods to, to progress no. or mm-hmm. tacked on triumphalism. No. They're both of the time that they were depicting and very much of the time they were made, which points to certain yeah. intractable features of, of this country, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we, Maybe. I always have to feel I issue a caveat. We've got our own problems back home in England. <laughs> to any uh, yeah. Yeah. any Americans listening, who the f- yeah. who's this limey git? <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> would say limey git. That yeah. would actually. Be the I just watched that recently. Actually, oh, really? tell him I'm fucking coming. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 a beautiful comparison, and I, and I will watch them again. All right. Well, we can end it there. But before we do, it would be great if each of us went around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. Because the world has seemed to be especially terrible with Donald Trump pardoning Joe Arpaio during a massive hurricane that is completely destroying large sections of Texas. Arpaio, who would brag about his uh, jails being run like concentration camps and has a whole other list of crimes, including faking his own assassination attempt. So I've, I've been feeling not so great. So I decided to get some comfort, cinematic comfort. And I watched Friday, which um, is one of the many comedies in the 90s that was sponsored by the weed industry. And uh, it stars Ice Cube and Chris Tucker. Ice Cube is a really great comedic actor. He co-wrote the film. And sometimes in the film, he rides around in a car listening to his own music, which is just like really good. And it's like, it's, um, it's just like a really warm, it's really, it's really the a, it's the next level. Yeah. Next, I mean, it's like, but it's like, you can't, you love it though. You're loving it. You're like, this is ridiculous, but I'm with it. But what I think it's like a very, you know, given that in the 90s there was this idea that the inner cities are these horrible hell holes and it's just a war zone and that and you know the president still thinks that way um it's a, such a colorful warm and funny depiction of inner city life that it's like it's just a, a nice antidote again to things that are going on and i'm not saying that donald trump should watch friday I don't think that would help, but it would be nice if um, the government was able to do to the executive branch what Ice Cube does to Devo at the end. So that is my film. <laughs> How to follow? How to follow that? <laughs> I I went the other way. Mm. I started at the cliff edge of despair and jumped <laughs> off. 
by I was starting to get jealous of people raving about Twin Peaks series three yeah. on, on Twitter, and I'd, I'm a big a big David Lynch fan, um, but mm. I'd, I'd not really gone anywhere near the, the Twin Peaks universe for some reason. So I binged on the first series and half of the second, which started to really kind of slow down midway through. And I was asking people whether I really needed to go all the way through. I, I did my best, but when we got to the the um, Piper Laurie and Yellowface. I just thought, I'm not sure I need this in my life. <laughs> it kind of goes, really goes off a cliff. I mean, mm-hmm. there, are, there are some pleasures along the way. All of this is to say that I caught up all the way to Fire Walk With Me, which mm-hmm. I watched for the first time two nights ago. And I think it's a really, really strong, mm-hmm. deeply upsetting piece of work um, with much in common with Lost Highway and and when when he goes really out there, mm-hmm. not surprised it was critically panned at the time. I was doing some re- like reading up on it, mm-hmm. um, but most of all, I was very impressed by the performance of Cheryl Lee, yeah. who gives a truly remarkable multifaceted performance and does some grade A level screaming. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's a, it's a really intense piece of work. And Twin Peaks is an awkward one because it doesn't work if you watch it in the day, because no. you know you need darkness. But then if you watch it at night, you're gonna have Terrible nightmare. Um, so that <laughs> if anyone's got any solutions for me there. Uh, magic hour. Magic oh, hour. But I've started on se- season three and, and very much enjoying it. Oh, great. Well, you have. You should watch the final episode of season two. Because oh, no, that I did. Is... I, I plowed through. I plowed okay, through. good. Good. Because that was my f- favorite hour of television before the season three started. So, Eric? So the film that I want to talk about is a, a, a film that I hadn't seen called The Enchanted Desna by Yulia Sonseva. Uh, we had a... a, a the sort of loose trilogy of her films um i guess we we were calling them the ukrainian trilogy at the museum at museum the moving image uh a former intern of ours max carpenter turned around and came up with a fantastic idea and opportunity for us to screen these very rarely screened films at at the museum and two of them are 70 millimeter and the third chronological uh film is called this film the enchanted desna i think it's from 64 65 and it was um in terms of cinephiles, known probably primarily as a film that was, I, I believe, Jean-Luc Godard's top film of that year for his famous Cahier du Cinema lists, and but was a bit of a just a lost film in many ways. Um, it was great to show the films. Uh, they're all great. They're all fascinating. Um, the first two films in that loose trilogy are um, you know, crossover with uh, socialist, Soviet socialist realist um, cinema. So if you know that tradition of cinema, it's definitely part of that tradition and therefore can be a little bit harder for a modern uh, American, uh, contemporary American audience to, to, to get with entirely, although visually very interesting and in terms of narrative, very, very interesting. The Enchanted Desert is something else though. Like I, I don't think, I can't remember the last time I sat in front of a film and thought, this is a masterpiece. I, I now have in my life something that I ought to have had already because it's 50 years old. But it's I don't know, it's hard to describe that, but that that sensation of oh I now know one of the masterpieces, um, and I didn't even know I missed it. I didn't know enough to miss this thing. <laughs> now it's here. Now I need to watch it all the time, mm-hmm. and I can't. That weird, the weird thing print. that when a film just goes straight into your all-time top ten, yes. it's unbelievable. Yeah. I had that the first time I ever saw To Sleep with Anger. Oh wow, yeah. yeah. Because you Definitely. know it's it suffered from distribution issues. I mean, the BFI put it out years ago, like way before my time. But then I saw it for the first time and it was just like, why isn't this like... Why isn't this everywhere? Why is yeah. this everywhere? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's just, I mean, it's on the colors are un- incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, there are sound bridges and visual bridges that are 
astonishing. You can't even do it service to describe what it is or even to compare it to other things. It is that good and that singular in terms of how it looks and sounds. I encourage you, it's very hard to see, <laughs> but it's, it's certainly worth following. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.